Perhaps you know the parable of the blind men and the elephant. Uh, There were once six blind men who stood by the side of the road begging. They'd often heard of elephants, but they'd never seen one because, of course, how could they? They were blind. But one morning, they heard an elephant coming down the road with its driver, and they begged the driver, please stop, that we might see the elephant. And, of course, they could not see the elephant, but by touching the elephant, they thought they might find out what it was like. Well, the first blind man, he put his hand out and he touched the side of the elephant. He says, how smooth an elephant is like a wall. The second blind man, he put his hand out and he touched the trunk of the elephant. How round, he said, an elephant is like a snake. The third blind man put out his hand and he touched the tusk of the elephant. How sharp, he said, an elephant is like a spear. Well, the fourth blind man put his hand out and he touched the leg of the elephant. How tall, he said, an elephant is like a tree. The fifth blind man reached out and he touched the ear of the elephant. How wide, he said, an elephant is like a fan. The sixth blind man put out his hand and he touched the tail of the elephant. How thin, he said, an elephant is like a rope. But each of the blind men understood only a part of what the elephant was like. And it's a little bit like that in our Bible passage today. We're going to see that many people only understood a part of what Jesus was like, based on their experience of him, but somehow missed the bigger picture. And our task is to take all of the separate impressions and to put them together to gain the full understanding of who Jesus is. So why don't we pray and then we'll open the Bible. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to read your word today. Please reveal hidden truth to us as we see the signs that Jesus did, as we listen to his disciples speak about him, and as we hear Jesus himself speak. Please open our eyes today and reveal spiritual truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we are almost at the end of our sermon series from Matthew chapter 13 to 16, uh, a series we've been calling Hidden Treasures. It's been all about digging deeper and looking deeper into Jesus' teaching, going below the surface, looking at his miracles, and seeking to understand the deeper meaning behind them. Now, if you think back across the last eight weeks, each little story has been a bit like a puzzle piece. Each one contains part of the picture of who Jesus is. But today, we're going to be putting all of the puzzle pieces together. So why don't we open up our first puzzle piece and see what the picture reveals. Well, our first passage, our first piece of the puzzle today comes from Matthew chapter 16, verse 1 to 4. It's an interaction that Jesus has with some Jewish religious leaders, Pharisees and Sadducees. And they come to Jesus with a test. At verse 1, the Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, if you've been with us through this series, uh, or if you've read much of the gospel, you'll know that the Pharisees and Sadducees often came into contact and into opposition with Jesus. His teaching amazed the people, and he spoke with an authority that their rabbis uh, didn't have. He outshone their rabbis. It's Matthew 7, 28 to 29. And more than once, Jesus had rebuked the Pharisees uh, for their legalistic approach to religion, And so there's this rising conflict between Jesus and the religious establishment of the time. 
And in this moment, they come to test him. Show us a sign from heaven, they say. The Pharisees and the Sadducees, they wanted to know if Jesus, well, they wanted to know who Jesus is. And they want to know if he was genuinely sent by God. Was he genuinely empowered by God? Was he genuinely connected to God? Was he speaking on behalf of God? They wanted to know that last one. Was he speaking on behalf of God because he'd spoken against them and he'd threatened their position of power? So they wanted Jesus to prove himself, to prove his identity and to prove his credentials. They wanted to see a miracle. If you're real, do a miracle right now and then we'll believe you, they said. Well, sometimes I wonder what must have been going through Jesus' mind at that moment. I wonder if he was thinking back over all of the signs from heaven that he'd already just performed. Uh, just in the last three chapters, we've been studying these since summer, and uh, we've seen Jesus heal a crowd, uh, healed crowds of people who were sick. Uh, he'd fed this crowd of 5,000, it was probably more like 15,000 people, but 5,000 is the number that's written there, men only, with just a few loaves and fishes. But Jesus had walked on water. Uh, Jesus had cast a demon out of a, of a girl. Um, he'd uh, healed her, he'd fed another crowd of 4,000, just like the first one, and then he'd healed the mute and the lame and the blind in crowds, in droves. Jesus had performed sign after sign from heaven. And that's without even looking back at the earlier chapters where Jesus had healed hundreds and thousands more. He'd cast out demons again and again. He even raised a girl from the dead. And not too many chapters from here, Jesus himself would be raised from the dead after three days in the belly of the earth. But sometimes people see all of the signs and it just isn't enough for them. The treasure remains hidden from their sight because they refuse to look deeper. Well, listen, listen to how Jesus responds to their test in verse two. Jesus replied, when evening comes, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, today it will be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. Jesus said, you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. I grew up with that expression, red sky at night, sailor's delight, red sky morning, sailor's warning. That was something that we said a lot in our house. Uh, there was a lot of sailing when I grew up. But Jesus says, you might be able to predict the weather by looking at the sky. He says, maybe you can predict the weather, but it doesn't mean you can understand everything that is going on in the world. And as humans, you see, we are good at understanding the seen world. Uh, the seen world is what we can see with our eyes and what we can touch and what we can experience with our five senses. But the seen world is not all that there is. The unseen world also exists alongside the seen. And God's plans may not be something that we can perceive from a human perspective. And that was the Pharisees' problem. They couldn't read the signs about what God was doing right in front of them in the person of Jesus Christ. They couldn't understand the signs of the times. And so that's the first vignette in our passage today, the first puzzle piece. The Pharisees and the Sadducees failing to read all of the signs that point to who Jesus is. Well, for the second puzzle piece about Jesus' identity, we're going to skip down a few verses. The disciples, they've crossed the lake, they've made their way 25 miles north to the region of Caesarea Philippi. It's about as far as you can get from Jerusalem, 
and still be within Israel's borders. Uh, this was a town known for its pagan religion. It was said to be the birthplace of uh, Pan, the Greek god of nature and fertility. Uh, in fact, even today, the city is still named after Pan. It's called Benias. And around the hills, uh, around the town, there were temples and shrines to the classic Greek gods. And because it was so eastern, it also contained Babylonian gods, uh, the Baal, Ashtoreth, and those gods. In Caesarea Philippi itself, Herod the Great had built a large white marble temple dedicated to the Roman emperor, to the Caesar, who was portrayed as a god and worshipped as a god. This was a town that surrounded itself with every form of deity that you could imagine. And in the middle of all of those other gods, in the middle of all of those shrines and temples, in the middle of all of those religious symbols, Jesus asks his disciples a question. He says, in verse 13, who do people say the Son of Man is? Well, the Son of Man is one of those titles that Jesus uses for himself. Uh, this is the ninth time that he's referred to himself as the Son of Man. Uh, just in Matthew's Gospel. Sometimes in the Old Testament, Son of Man just refers to a human being. But there's also this significant Old Testament prophecy about a Son of Man. Uh, it's in Daniel chapter 7, and it begins with this vision of God. Uh, he's on a, a flaming throne. He's portrayed as the powerful judge presiding over the final judgment of the heaven and the earth. But listen to what comes next in this vision of God on his throne. By the way, uh, the Ancient of Days you're about to hear, uh, that's the name for God sitting there as that big judge. Well, verse 13 says this. In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed, never be destroyed. Well, this son of man in Daniel is a figure of immense importance and influence. God, the ancient of days, hands his power to the Son of Man. He hands power and dominion and authority to him. And, and this Son of Man is presented as the eternal king over all nations and all people. They bow down and worship him. And his kingdom, it says, will never be destroyed. Well, that must have been a, quite a promise after Israel's disappointing history with kings. Uh, the years that they'd spent as a nation in exile, taken away into Babylon and um, Assyria. Uh, they'd been occupied by the Greeks and the Persians and, and now the Roman Emperor. This new idea, this idea of a new king, a new kingdom and, and a new time of favor for God's people, we can imagine how it grew in their prominence, in the prominence in their thinking for the Jewish people. So that's the idea behind the Son of Man. Who do people say the Son of Man is? Jesus asks in Matthew 16, 13. Well, the disciples reply in verse 14. Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Back in chapter 14, uh, Herod, the governor uh, who had 
John the Baptist beheaded. Well, he thought Jesus was John the Baptist risen from the dead. And perhaps this was one of the rumors going around about who Jesus was. Other people said Jesus was Elijah. Elijah was probably the greatest of the Old Testament prophets. His ministry was accompanied by signs and wonders and miracles, and so you can see the similarity to Jesus. But more than that, in Malachi, the very last book of the Bible, in fact, the very last chapter of the Old Testament, just a few words before the end, it says that God would send Elijah right before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. That is, Elijah would signal the arrival of God's anointed king and judge. So if Elijah comes, then the Son of Man is coming. Are you seeing the Old Testament ideas lining up? Son of Man, Elijah. Well, there's more. See, some said that Jesus was Jeremiah or one of the prophets. A Jewish tradition had that that, uh, Jeremiah had taken the Ark of the Temple temple was being threatened uh, by the Babylonians at the time of the exile and Jeremiah it says had taken the Ark of the Covenant away from the temple and he'd hidden it on Mount Nebo but the tradition was that Jeremiah would come back at the time of the arrival of God's promised king and that the return of the Ark would restore the glory of God to the temple and the glory of God to the people again his expectations of glorious return and restoration and redemption They're all there. Now, there's one word that I've avoided saying. It's a title that we're going to read in just a moment. Perhaps you know what the word is. This was a word that had been whispered by God's people for centuries. The name of the one who would restore their fortunes, finally. He would once again make the nation of Israel great. Follow the conversation with me from verse 13. Who do people say I am? Sorry, who do people say the Son of Man is? And they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. The Messiah, the anointed one, that's literally what the word means, anointed, uh, the Greek word is Christ, means exactly the same thing, but Messiah, in the Hebrew language, it means the anointed one. In the Old Testament, uh, the kings of Israel, they were anointed with oil. Uh, Oil was poured on them. It was a symbol that God had chosen them. And so the word Messiah came to stand for king, even though the word Messiah actually doesn't appear in the Old Testament. Uh, And so one of the great expectations of the Old Testament comes from a promise that God made to King David, the greatest of all the kings, perhaps, God promised to David that there would always be a king on the throne from the line of David. It's in 2 Samuel 7. And as I've already mentioned, that line of kings after David, it was far from perfect. In fact, after David and after Solomon, in his son's hands, the kingdom split into two and many of the kings worshipped false gods. And eventually, God brought judgment on his people. And they were taken into exile and the kingdom lay in ruins. But even at their lowest point, the people held on to this promise that a new king would come, a king anointed by God, a Messiah. That was the hope of Israel. And in the centuries before Jesus' birth, that messianic expectation grew. A king to restore God's people. That was what Messiah meant to the Jews of the time. 
And so when Peter calls Jesus the Messiah, he rightly understands that Jesus is God's anointed one, the promised king that God was sending. He wasn't one of the prophets. He wasn't a messenger like John the Baptist. He was the one that they'd been waiting for. It must have been such an exciting moment for the disciples with that word finally out there in public, Messiah, that they'd put the puzzle pieces together. They'd felt their way all the way around the elephant and they understood who he was, or so they thought. So it must have been a surprise when moments later, in verse 20, Jesus ordered the disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. You know when you have good news and you just have to share it? A few weeks ago, I woke to the sound of my phone buzzing. Uh, It was the middle of the night. Uh, I thought my phone wasn't meant to receive any messages between 10 p.m. and 7 a.m., but there it was. It was buzzing. Uh, We were in a hotel in the middle of Europe somewhere. I didn't even know which country it was. So I was already confused when I woke up, and there's this text message, in fact, three or four of them, from my daughter, Charlotte. Uh, She's 19. She asks, can we come to your room? I've got some news to tell you. Um, News so important that you can't wait. News so important that we would have to sit down to hear it. Now, I might be a bad father, but uh, I asked her to wait until morning to tell us. Uh, Joe was already asleep. I was already asleep. And the news was that she got into the nursing course at her university. She's very excited, and we were very excited for her too. And imagine that the disciples, right, they're full of that same kind of excitement, the sort of excitement that makes you want to run out and text somebody in the middle of the night. And Jesus orders them not to tell anybody. Well, Why? We find out the answer in the next section of the passage because Jesus reveals something new about what it means for him to be the Messiah. Reading from verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the law and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. All the impressions of the Messiah so far have been these images of triumph and victory and power. But Jesus reveals another side to the messianic expectation. Instead of ascending to an earthly throne, instead of gaining political influence, instead of overthrowing the Roman occupiers, instead Jesus told his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem where he would suffer and die. You can imagine Peter's confusion. Peter, in fact, he takes Jesus aside and begins to rebuke him. He says, never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. (laughs) Peter can't see how the path that Jesus describes matches their expectations of the Messiah. Peter thinks the Messiah needs to be the king. Peter is willing to fight for his Messiah, to protect him and make sure he gets on the throne. But Peter is like a blind man who's only felt one part of the elephant. He knows that Jesus is the Messiah, but he doesn't understand the whole picture. And with this last piece of the puzzle, Jesus reveals the bigger picture to them now, a picture that combines the prophecies about the Son of Man and the Messiah. And he adds a new dimension with a prophecy from the book of Isaiah, a section that we call the servant songs or the suffering servant passages. See, from Isaiah chapter 40 to 60, this prophecy builds a picture of God's people being redeemed and rescued and restored from all of their troubles, but not through a political savior, instead through one who would rescue them from their sins. 
He would do that by suffering and taking upon himself the punishment that the people deserved. We see that suffering servant presented most clearly in Isaiah 53. Listen to what the prophecy says. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. Isaiah 53.4 eloquently summarizes the message of the cross. The message at the heart of Christianity. On the cross, Jesus willingly suffered and died to deal with our transgressions and iniquities. Are there two old-fashioned words that mean uh, that Jesus deals with our sin? He deals with all of the things that we do to hurt others and the things we do that hurt ourselves, and, and he deals with the way that we reject God. And Jesus, the suffering servant, well, he is pierced and crushed so that we never have to face the eternal consequences of our sin. Our punishment is placed upon him. And that great exchange, his life given for ours, our sin placed upon him. Well, that's the reason why we can have peace with God. And we can have forgiveness and, and the hope of eternal life. This is a promise that is far greater than the temporary promise of a miracle, a temporary healing. It's far greater than the promise of a political savior. It's the promise of eternal hope. And it's all bound up in recognizing Jesus, recognizing who Jesus is and what he came to do. So come back to that question that Jesus asks Peter back in verse 15. Jesus asked Peter, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? Do you know, Jesus is asking us the same question today. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? We've been given multiple pictures of who Jesus is. The Son of Man is more than a prophet. He's more than a messenger. He's more than an earthly king. He's somebody who is willing to die for you. But someone who would rise again after three days. Somebody who would take his position beside the Ancient of Days, enthroned forever with all power and dominion and authority given to him, with every tribe and nation and people bowing down before him in worship. That's the picture of Jesus that Matthew presents for us. And all of those facets of Jesus, all of those puzzle pieces, they all come together to fill out the full picture of who Jesus is. And you know what? They fill out the picture of who Jesus will be to all of us one day, on the day when we meet him face to face. This is who he will be on the day that he returns. Uh, you may not think much of Jesus now. We may not think much of Jesus now. But one day he will be revealed in all of that splendor. One day he will be revealed as all-powerful, the judge and the saviour. And so the question he asks each of us is, who do you say I am? Who is Jesus to you? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for these pictures of Jesus that you've given us. Thank you for filling out the picture of who he really is, painting the full portrait of both his glory and his splendor and his majesty, but also his humility and his willingness to die on the cross for us, to save us and rescue us from our sins and to restore us to be your children forever and ever, to live in your kingdom with you, worshiping Jesus. We pray, Father, that we would take this news and trust it. Give us faith in Jesus. Restore us. Forgive us. 
and lead us into eternal life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.